Good day, friends. Welcome to our Powers Within podcast. I'm your host, Chasmith, and my mission for this podcast is to inspire you to take your power back and to realize that you are the healer that you have been looking for all along. I want to start out by saying how much I appreciate your continued support. If you are listening and you find the content that my guests share valuable, please don't forget to click subscribe so that you have every new episode waiting for you in your podcast library. You could also leave a five-star rating, a quick review on Apple Podcasts, or share your favorite episode on social media and tag me at Our Power Is Within. Help me spread the message of empowerment and possibility. So our challenge for this week is to savor the good. Now that you are filled up with all the wonderful and kind compliments that you gave to yourself last week and to others and focused on the good for a whole week, we get to exaggerate the good. How often do you really notice the taste of your delicious coffee in the morning or hold the cup up to your nose and smell it and then swish it around in your mouth, just really savoring it? Or maybe sitting outside and really noticing how beautiful and wonderful the sunshine feels as it warms your body and skin. Or maybe pausing and listening to the sounds of your children playing in the background, listening to their chatter and laughter, and just thinking to yourself how delightful and lively it feels. Or maybe when you're laying in a hammock, reading a book, getting lost in a story, and you just have this moment where you really get excited thinking about how powerful and alive this story feels. There are an infinite number of ways that we can practice being more present throughout the day through act of savoring each moment and really taking it all in and more. So as usual, have fun with this challenge because you are, after all, worth it. You are, every single person listening. Our guest today is Drew Coverdale. Drew is a published author of the book, The Pain Habit. Him and I have a lovely chat today where we learn all about his inspiration for his book, the purpose of, like the purpose behind the book, and what he's up to in this world, plus a little bit about his story and how his understanding of mind-body pain has really helped him transform his life in a positive way. So here he is. Drew, thank you so much for being here today with me and everybody who will be tuned in to listen. Chasmith, thank you very much for the invite. Pleasure to hear from you in sunny Florida. And we've got a little bit of sun here in the UK today, so ditto. Awesome. Um, Well, for everyone who is listening, I just want to let them know that you are actually an author, a published author of a book called The Pain Habit. And I thought um, what we could do to start is literally just have you briefly explain what the pain habit actually means, like because you named your book after it. So I'd love to hear what the pain habit actually does entail. Yeah, thank you. So I was unsure, and I suppose many people are when they write a book, what's the title that can epitomize and capture people's attention. And um, I looked at uh, what I thought pain was, and there's so many definitions out there that you know it really confuses people and it's a very different thing to uh, interpret. But when you look at how pain originates, and yes, it can come through trauma. Yes, it can come through physical injuries. But often there's behaviors that come with those moments in time that are based in that fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response that protect us. But when you look at pain that lasts a long time, and long beyond physical injury, tissue healing times, or the emotional events long past, a lot of the pain is driven by a perpetuation of the behaviors that come through that fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response. And they're invisible to patients, they're invisible to me, they're invisible to you. Even when we we it's suggested that we have behaviors that are habitual, we deny having them, and we reject the idea. So when you, when I, when I called it the pain habit, it's really to say that it isn't anybody's fault when these behaviors are pointed out to them, 
We've all got habits that are good and bad. We're happy to accept our good ones. We're not so happy to accept or be responsible for behaviours that result in our pain. And yet if we just for a moment take a pause and think, yeah, I do have some habits that contribute to my pain, that awareness gives us that tiniest gap where we have an opportunity to change them. Mm, Okay. Yeah. So you're basically just saying that pain essentially becomes habitual in our bodies, in our brains. Yes. And it's, um, it's quite an addictive process. The, the way we're wired to protect ourselves, um, innately it's to kind of run away from the line, isn't it? And fight if we can, if it's something to fight or freeze in the, in, in the presence of a danger that we can't escape or fawn. And they're very successful mechanisms in evolutionary terms, but they're not very good to use over the longer term. So they're good for an argument, they're good for a, a sporting event, they're good for a presentation or to kind of look after a, an ill child or a parent for a few, several weeks. But it's very, very uh, energetic on the system, isn't it? It's kind of, as soon as you feel that response, pupils change shape your um, digestion capillaries tighten up so the blood rushes to your arms and legs breathing increases your heart rate increases and uh, the thinking part of your brain the capillaries there squeeze to rush the blood to your reflex thinking and that's perfect for that short-term emergency state and either for uncertainty that we've asked for might be sport or work the challenges that give us a thrill and we enjoy well, sometimes it's a dying parent or it's a divorce or it's an ill child or it's the dog eating your homework. It's entirely subjective, but when those systems are overloaded for too long or with such a traumatic situation, then um, the body can't sustain using those systems in that intensity for that period of time. And that's when they start to fail. And the beauty about our systems is that pain is the last chance saloon before disease. It's the last chance saloon. And if you can attend to yourself in that moment of pain in the right way, then the symptoms subside. If you push through pain and continue to fight it and ignore it or see the wrong meaning for it, misinterpret it as structural damage only or a name of a disease or a name of a condition and then be a warrior to it prove you can beat it actually you're just not seeing the behaviors that are perpetuating your your difficulty Mm, so you're saying that pain is the last like step before like the last step that happens before usually disease kicks in it's before damage Pain is mm-hmm. pain should be seen as protection and not proof of damage. So pain, you've woke up, Chasmith, with a bruise and had no recollection of what you did to get the bruise. So you sustained and I've sustained injuries without any pain. Okay. Because we were involved in a situation that we had really probably enjoying or had to deal with where we just didn't notice our feelings. Next day, you wake up and you've got a bruise. Now, there's other times, so that shows that you can suffer damage without having pain. And if you think of another occasion where you suffer pain without damage, you know, physical damage, then anybody who considers the thought or a moment of grief, if you look back in your life at one, you'll feel the pain pretty much now. And there's no physical damage at the moment, but consider a thought of the saddest day in your life or someone you've lost who you'd like still to be here, and you'll feel that sense in your body in some way. So that's that would be described as painful. So that means you can have pain without physical damage. And, and we also give the early example of damage without physical pain. Pain can come with physical damage, but it doesn't mean it always does. And that means that The way we are wired in evolutionary terms is when you or I feel pain, the first thing we are innately wired to do is look out for the bite, the sting, the twist, the turn, the thing that's triggered our systems to injure us in the moment. But with persistent pain, 
we look for the same innate kind of reaction but rather than an actual injury being present it's more our bodies responding to the memories of the past based on a prediction of what our brain thinks is going to happen next in the circumstances we're in but we feel that sensation now potentially as a pain and if you look under the sensations before that there's a range of signals that come before pain range of signals and the brain only uses pain in four ways if you didn't drink all day you could see those series of warnings that um, we all get that finishes with a headache because you missed the thirst, you missed the sensation of the dry mouth, you've missed that sensation of irritation, you might have had other things to do so you can push past that. Now this isn't that serious to do that, but if you go beyond pain and you have a headache from the lack of thirst, you've only got a few days and then it's organ failure and death. So the body has to do something. It uses the same mechanism with food. If you use the same example and didn't eat for a while, you have a little longer than you do with with water, but you get another contextual pain, such as stomach pain, that would be telling you not that you're damaged, but that you haven't got long before you will be damaged. So food and water are very easy examples to understand. If you took the protective mechanism of pain from holding your hand on a hot object, if it's a radiator, you'd be able to hold it on for a certain length of time. As you draw your hands off it because it got too hot, you wouldn't have any physical damage. So pain protects you from, uh, in terms of uh, measuring the amount of water in your body, the amount of nutrition in your body. It measures the physical elements of your body with uh, thermal receptors and chemical receptors and pressure receptors that we know as physical pain. And then it also measures the amount of stress chemicals in our body. And this is one culturally we're really, really slow to pick up on and probably deny a lot of the time. And if you felt in the stress response through something you enjoyed or you didn't enjoy, there's a series of feelings that happen as you go further and further up that scale. And pain is at the top of that scale before tissue breakdown or system overload or disease. And the beauty of this is that as you go up that scale, the last chance the brain has to, to get you out of the stressful situation you're either focusing on that um, you can't do anything about, or it's screaming at you to get out of that situation, and it uses pain to do it. And once you've got a particular pain in your body or a series of them that are wired to the stress response, that pain can be triggered without any physical overload that causes damage or even without enough emotional load that, that's traumatic it becomes so sensitive that it's like a really low level tripwire but it creates the experience that's so startling for the person experiencing it that they believe they're damaged mm. how interesting this is a really neat way of having it be explained um okay so when you refer to pain, just so we can be clear about this, you're not just referring to muscular skeletal pain, correct? Well, that's my starting point in terms of experience. So that's mm -hmm. my entry point to this field after 25 years as a physical therapist, physiotherapist, is that people would present pain to me. And I would say, where's your pain? They'd point to the knee and I'd look at what was under the knee, what the joints above the knee and below the knee and think what could cause this pain okay from a physical perspective and then translate that to neck back shoulders and anywhere anywhere in the body and within about three months all tissue has healed within three months and it doesn't matter whether there's a scar left there the tissue's healed now it might have healed as best as it can it might look the way you want it to look but essentially it's healed and there's no reason for pain beyond that time. The protective mechanism that the organism needed um, has passed. And if pain stays beyond that, then there's an extra layer of protection that the body's still using, the body and brain are still using. The nervous system is attached to something else emotional to that physical injury. 
So when you, when I would see people who didn't have structural injury, you know, they say it just came on, you know, nothing happened, and this pain's been there three months, six months, or a year. It just didn't follow the logic. It doesn't follow the logic. So, you, so if someone had a back pain, for example, and they said it came on, and it just came gradually, and then don't remember anything happened. It's there a year later, and it's pretty much constant. The logic of a physical practitioner, a therapist might be saying, so nothing physically happened, and you've got this pain that's there a year down the line. They say, yeah. They'll say, it's my weight, it's my age, it's my height, it's my genes, it's the weather, it's the way I sit, or it's because my middle name's called Tom. They think anything, anything to make get meaning in the pain. The practitioner will try this, that, and the other because they're chasing the physical elements and, and only that. But really, they should be saying, that person should be saying to have pain that long, I was hit by a hammer, I, got, I fell down the stairs, then I had a car crash, to have that much pain that's there a year later. And they're not describing really severe physical trauma. So then you think, well, where's the physical overload? And it, they're not saying I moved a two-ton two ton of topsoil, I painted the house from top to bottom, and then I mowed the lawn and my neighbour's lawn on that day, and I've had pain all year. Because that, that, that might make sense in the early stages. So they're not describing trauma, they're not describing obvious physical overload, and the timeline, should any of those events have happened, is long past. Now, if you ask that person, what was your life like two or three months before you start to feel that pain, you'll find something in it with uncertainty, a lack of information about to deal with that uncertainty, and a sense of loss of control in the person experiencing that pain. And you'll also mm. find a set of traits that are very common in people with very who are found in the population that have persistent pain, and they're found in all of the population, and none of us are immune to this, whether you have intellectual knowledge about it or not. And in that moment, they push through, they tell everyone they're fine, they keep going, they're a little bit perfectionist and controlling about that particular situation and want to resolve it so badly, but they can't. And they're really good at suppressing the emotion of how they feel in that moment. And that's fine if it's just a short-term situation, but for them and these these situations, it's normally normally too much. And the things that normally bring us down in those moments are love, care, kindness, compassion. Yes, when the people in our lives and places and animals and friends, but if we don't have that network to bring us down and we haven't found the skills or been taught them in childhood to get them from ourselves without those people or places around us, then quite often we just use that adrenaline-based, cortisol-inducing, short-term behaviour to push through again. So we exercise harder, we work harder. And if you're lucky, you use those two. And if you're not lucky, you drink, drugs, sex, shopping, gambling. And believe me, those are all thrilling things. They're legal and you're allowed to do them, but they're all destructive. And if you can show someone that cycle and say, gosh, yeah, I, I realise it was too much for me. My, my job or my divorce or my grief or my this or my that, before this pain started, then you can use the physical elements to give them moments of control, a level of certainty and the information to know that they can recover from whatever pain, physical or emotional, that is driving that manifestation that they turn up at your door with. Mm -hmm. I really like that. That's interesting. Um, I never thought about it that way, but how you said if we're not taught this, the right skills when we're young, you how you brought up that we'll then use like adrenaline-based actions to push through. Oh, gosh, as you say that, I was like, oh, I can see that in my life in the past. <laughs> oh, it all makes sense. <laughs> Remember how this is encoded? Uh, uh, in, a, in, in childhood, Chatsmith, we, um, we don't have a conscious thought. We don't have conscious thought till about the age of nine. Give or take a couple of years, maybe seven, eight, nine, but sometimes till you're 10, 11, 12. It's all copied behavior and watched and learned and experienced. It's not really consciously learned. So we learn how to uh, 
eat with a knife and fork, how to brush your teeth, how to relate to friends, how to be a man, how to be a woman, how to uh, smile, how to laugh, how to express emotion, how to suppress it, how to deal with pain, your own and other people's, how to tell people, how to say nothing about it. Now, these are all lessons that are kind of invisible from caregivers, siblings, friends, who our, our circles of childhood, and it's all happening visibly. There's good behaviours in there, but sometimes they're not so good, so much good models. And um, sometimes that uncertainty that happens in some childhoods, and it doesn't have to be charm with a capital T, there's a big list of adverse childhood experiences that are pretty horrific. Um, but there's some that are kind of just not so. But And we've all experienced trauma. We've all been called names. We've all been kind of missed out on a bag of sweets sometimes. Or we've all been forgotten about or, you know, occasionally. So we've all felt, felt that sense of distress in childhood. And in that moment, the brain is desperately looking for a behaviour to take the child towards safety. So if I was called ginger nut, and I'm not changing now, I'm Cali I was Californian blonde, that's how I described myself as a child actually, but I'm silver grey now, or autumn surprise, if you picture that colour, in my 52nd year of life, And um, but imagine the child's called ginger nut, and they don't have anybody around them to protect them from that, so the child has to do something that makes the, that sense of unease, they don't know how to deal with that situation, so they have to feel better, and we always do a behaviour to feel better. So the child runs, so I would run, you know, fight or flight. Some people would freeze or fawn, but I would run. Now, if I got survival from that, that's a beneficial behaviour to prove someone wrong who tells me I'm something I'm not, just for an example. Now, imagine a childhood very uncertain. There's divorce or there's grief or dad works away or there's bullying or there's abuse of some sort. And... Um, a range of different things and the uncertainty in that child is repetitive it means that those safety behaviors running freezing fawning proving you can do it fighting against the situation you're in become normal become absolutely normal so the set point of that child rather than being in a balanced loving relationship and free and compassion and care around them they're based in fight or flight they're based in the survival state and that means they develop those behaviors that feel so normal that become the traits that we just described the perfectionism the great game face i'm fine granny died this morning dog died too wife left me kids being arrested lost my job anyway how are you <laughs> It was very wow. driven, and they're perfect for jobs in care, looking after money, being a manager, sorting people out. They are, those people say they're not stressed. Well, by definition, I'm talking to you now in the office hours. I am stressed, but I, I'm loving it. It gives me a sense of who I am, validation, approval, uh, feel worthy, feel capable can demonstrate a level of knowledge and understanding but I, there's no point me doing this eight o'clock tonight it doesn't matter how much i enjoy it it's destructive behavior if i don't go home and hug the kids walk by the river, river with someone i love kiss my wife be told i love you and get it back off her watch a bee jump from a onto a flower and watch it move from petal to petal those are serotonin based behaviors laughing with my friends till i cry they are serotonin and oxytocin behaviours that sometimes these are behaviours we can't access in moments of overload in life. We just don't know how to get them for ourselves. And that's the tipping point where we overuse those default behaviours that often create our pain and then drive it. And then swear blind that we have nothing to do with the pain that's appeared. We say it's the weight, the height, the age, the genes, the degeneration, the genetic predisposition. And I'm saying none of that's true. It's relevant, but it isn't the truth behind the meaning of that person's pain. Right, right. So, okay, when you are working as a physiotherapist and you have people come into your office that are absolutely convinced that their pain is 
physical or they're they're bought into the idea that it's one of the things you listed you know it's their genes it's their you know whatever how do you ease into helping them be able to see um through a new lens and see that it could be beyond the physical yeah so you have to first you have to resonate with someone you have to kind of connect you've got to uh, and after 25 years, it doesn't mean you can do it with everybody every time. But, you know, you, you have a very nice, warm, I don't know you, but you uh, have a smile when I heard you, the tone of your voice. So that's a skill that you've learned. You might not know you have it, but, <laughs> but you do. So and I think I have a skill like that that I can listen. I sometimes get a little excited when I think I've got knowledge I want someone else to hear. That's something that I've learned or I'm learning. I have to regulate that because you have to allow someone the space for them to tell their story, not for me to tell mine. And when you allow someone the space to tell your story, you'll listen to where the pain is, but if you only focus on the pain, you miss the person. So it's really important to let them tell their story because very often, especially in many healthcare systems, we're just limited by time and nobody listens to them. And they hear the pain and go go looking for the pain. But if you tell a surgeon you've got pain, he's got a knife and wants to cut it out. If you tell a doctor he's got some tablets, if you tell a physio they want to do some physical therapy, if you tell a chiropractor he wants to adjust you, tell an acupuncturist he wants to stick a needle in it, to ask a reflexologist who want to do something to your feet. Your electrician, he'll tell you the wiring's wrong. See a plumber, he'll say there's a leak. Ask an architect, he'll tell you the plans are drawn wrong. We all look at that pain from our own perspective and we have to stop and listen to the patient and then ask them to look at the logic. You know, if you did injure yourself mm. on that day, where was the structural injury? And they really can't find one. Look at the timeline and say everything heals within three months. So if you did have the injury, if you broke your leg on that day, it's healed. Ask them what else was going on in their life. Tell them that the science supports the link. There's, there's a center in the brain that processes it. The, the emotional and physical pain processing area of the brain is essentially the same place. You can see this on scans and the science supports it. So you can only plant seeds with people. Some people are really amenable and very suggestible to new ideas and other people are absolutely not. You only have to look on the high street of your local town. You'll find people will kill each other for different beliefs. So you do have to be careful about suggesting new ideas to people. And um, but, but at the same time, you can't allow them just to follow down a path that's destructive for themselves otherwise that i see that as being clinically negligent so there's a point of challenge but if you can present new ideas to someone in a compassionate way and say this is something that you'll be able to help yourself with if you are able to come with me and i'll support you as as you as your questions appear about this and we can use physical methods to help you with emotional situations without going into the content of the emotion then you're really putting them in a safe place to allow them to stay with you on that journey of recovery, really, that they're doing and you simply just facilitate. It isn't an easy gig. If they come to me and say, Drew, I, I've heard what you do and I've heard of that connection and you look at pain differently, well, it's, it's already game over. You've won, if you like, if it's a competition because they're already engaged and you're just facilitating their, their curiosity when somebody's bathed in ideas based in damage and structure and they've had a consultant and scans and x-rays, it's a tougher flip, but they're the, they're the, ex, they're the challenging ones and I kind of I like them. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. I could definitely see that, especially if you can break through and reach them. And, uh, that's right, and it isn't... It isn't for me, because if you think it's just a challenge to you, once you share the journey with someone, if they if they if you feel honoured enough, to, if they'll honour you to do it, and you, you can be with them, then it's a very humbling experience. It's the most profound experience I've ever had as a clinician, and it's working with people who overcome chronic pain. Everybody gets over a twisted ankle. Everybody gets over kind of a 
sprained wrist these things you know you don't need a physio to do this you, you get people recover from the from minor injuries but when you can help someone who's had pain for a year or five or ten or twenty i mean it really is mind-blowing stuff and i think i think well, maybe all therapists i don't know if it's true or not but we're all in it to get something out of it more than money more than money and it's kind of maybe learning about ourselves and i've certainly learned a lot about myself through this process i went 30 years without any pain 20 years in childhood with a few bits and pieces but 30 years without pain and i know it since i met my wife and the lovely children and family we've built together but there was a point at which pain reappeared and it was exactly the circumstances which i described and and i couldn't see my own pain for six months i just kept on going kept on going kept on going and it was only when my wife stopped me and she said you help everybody with your own pain and she said you can't see the cause of your own and i realized god you don't have to be a, you don't have to know this stuff intellectually and write books about it to, to know how to do it my wife did it for me and the next morning i had no pain by making me see my own behaviors and i thought i'm going to write a book I'm going to write a book to put the intellectual information in it, but at a level that people should be able to understand. And, I, and my 10-year-old son at the time, I presented each chapter to him and said, what do you think? He went, yeah, I get it, Dad. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to put that down in a book. And if it could change one person's perception, that they just start to see their life slightly differently and maybe start to explore ways that they can help themselves because the power is within and you're your podcast and all the people have on it prove that then it's worthwhile doing absolutely so your motivation to write your book came through you experiencing pain yourself yes and uh, you know, sorry go on oh i was just gonna say um and it sounds like and correct me if i'm wrong were you when at the time that you began to experience physical pain, you already knew about the mind body like connection yeah. and the the mind component to pain. Yeah, yeah, I'd already done it for two or three years, and uh, was fascinated by it using techniques that seemed to work quickly for people, and other times it wouldn't. And it fascinated me why why does it work with some and not with others? And I couldn't work that out. And then I slowly developed my own pain through. Oh, you don't need to know the detail, but it's, it was based around grief and anticipating grief. So the six months to my father's death beforehand, and he knew it was going to happen. There's a family dynamic around that, and I had four children. And there's, there's a life with four children brings its challenges, and the children are amazing, but they bring the challenges. And and um, I ran the kids, one of my son's football teams, another one didn't want to kind of weren't sure what to do with his life. Another one was a little off the rails and needed kind of looking out for. Another daughter, a daughter was kind of financially kept working at uni and we wanted to help her and did our best to. My wife was maybe working somewhere, wasn't happy. So you feel kind of the energy of those things. And I had this busy clinic and I had another clinic and another business. And I was kind of doing my best to fix all this for everyone based on all the traits I described, then it, it never felt overloading to me and I couldn't see it because I'd always driven, I was a professional footballer, professional athlete, if you like, and when it, for several years before physio, then I'd studied a degree and a master's degree. And so you don't see it because you're in it. So intellectually having the knowledge does not make you immune. It does not make you immune from it. And that's why we're all about three months away from this. But if you're three months away from getting in this situation, then in theory, we're only about three months of recovering from it, no matter how long we've been in it. So it was only my own experience that made me see that even though some people can read a book and recover or have one session and recover, even those that don't do that, if they can habitually start to do the behaviours based in serotonin and oxytocin and if you think of the behaviors in terms of very human characteristics of thinking different thoughts breathing different ways moving in a different way and changing your emotional expression of their painful situation and habituating those behaviors then those habits can reverse the patterns of persistent pain and disease and illness 
So it's super interesting that you knew about the mind-body connection and all that before you actually, you knew about it through your work, not your in an effort to heal yourself. Yeah, I've just come across, I was always puzzled why after 20 years that the techniques I would do as a physio would help some people, not others. So firstly, I thought, well, maybe I'm not doing the right techniques. Secondly, when patients didn't respond, then I started to think, well, maybe the patients aren't doing what I say. So the first first viewpoint is that I blame myself. The second viewpoint is I blame the patients. <laughs> now, blame plays no point in recovery from persistent pain. It's nothing to do with blame. These are unconscious behaviours. Remember, these behaviours weighed in childhood are encoded in the, the part of the brain that's, uh, that's, that's invisible to us. They become... Um, when, they, when you do something towards safety in childhood, it actually becomes wired um, in a part of the brain called, oh, I can't remember the name, I think it's a dorsal striatum. It's a primitive part of the brain and it becomes uh, it becomes uh, wired with dopamine. So it always feels pleasurable to go to safety. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's wired as mm-hmm. running away from something is keeping you safe so it's actually wired as pleasurable in the brain now when it's been done a lot it moves across to another little part of the brain it's a routine section the routine section i think that's called the nucleus accumbens and that means once it's in that section when dopamine's released it just makes you compelled to do it so if you compared um eating a chocolate biscuit for the first time we all feel the pleasure of that. That's kind of dopamine saying, when we see these circumstances again, let's release some dopamine so we get the pleasure of eating the chocolate biscuit. Got it? Now, when you do, when you've had 50 chocolate biscuits, it kind of becomes routine. Okay, so it's in the routine section of your brain. And if something happened in your life that made you feel stressful, that dopamine release in the routine part of your brain tells you to do the quickest thing you can to feel better about yourself. And the quickest way to feel better is adrenaline and cortisol for those people. And so eating a chocolate biscuit is the quickest way to feel better. Now, if you get pain from eating too many chocolate biscuits, that creates stress on the system, it releases dopamine in the routine section of your brain, which is the quickest way to feel better eat more chocolate biscuits and interesting so pain pain from a physical perspective based on behaviors that are invisible to people just like you can get invisible eaters there's a program in the uk that's called invisible eaters and they'll say i didn't eat anything out the fridge last night and they'll put a camera on them they'll see they went in the fridge four times so <laughs> these behaviors are invisible so Making someone aware of them is a bit of a challenge, but if you do it compassionately and say, look, this has happened to me, then you connect in a way that they let the veil down. And, and often when you when you throw this back at someone or present it to someone with a physical pain that they believed was only due to structural elements, the relief that they get to know that they're not broken, but they do have to face some of the emotions driving the behaviours that they've used to protect themselves from those emotions, then then there's a gateway opens. They might cry. There's some form of emotional relief. The pain can disappear immediately because as soon as the fear about something goes, the autonomic response changes. As soon as your belief changes, you can never feel the same again. Do you, do you remember, Chas Smith, in... Um, a time in your life where someone might have bitten a carrot in half and had half a glass of milk and rested it by the fireplace on the 25th of December. Do you ever remember a circumstance like that? Because that's what we, we do that in England for the children to make them excited about who might be there. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, so the kids come in the room, see the half-eaten carrot and the half a glass of milk and they'll swear blind that Santa Claus has been there and Rudolph. Their pupils will dilate, they'll jump around, they'll be squealing with excitement, the heart rate increases. Now watch them the day that they walk in the room and see that carrot and milk. And they look at you and go, it was you, wasn't it? 
it's not it's not Santa. We have a totally different autonomic response. Yeah, they smiled and they laughed, but they never get the same excitement. And we never experience the same excitement ourselves when we when you realise it's dad or it's mum. You never get it back. You spend your lifetime right. to recreate it with your own children or grandchildren. You never get it back. I mean, fortunately, there's other things to make you pleasurable in life, but that moment, as soon as your belief changes, it's gone. And it's the same with pain. It's the same with pain. Once that fear goes... You can keep the structural elements that are there. You don't have to cure them, but the habitual patterns that people have around pain and that they present to themselves, they present to the family, they present to the work colleagues, they start to change them and it starts to change the pain. It's mm. a good analogy. When you had pain yourself, so after you've already known about this, you worked with it, you were aware, and then all of a sudden you had pain. What did things, anything in your life shift once you experienced pain yourself and we had to like look within and look at what the deeper level of the pain was? Did you have to make any shifts in your life? Yeah, I, I, the next morning I had less pain and I realized that um, I was kind of in, in denial of the situation, mm -hmm. thinking I could fix everything. So I looked at the things I could control. Yeah, the, the three elements with, with, with stress and pain, it's uncertainty, a lack of information, and a loss of control. Those three elements, they are present with persistent pain, and they'll often be present, present in the situations around you, and that's, they're the ones driving the pain. So I looked at my wife's situation at work, and she was changing job, well, that's no big deal. I looked at the kids' football team that I enjoyed, but I probably should do less. I looked at the business situation and thought, could I see a few less and take it easier on myself? Could I focus on my son's situation and his behaviour and maybe the, get him to toe the line a bit? And I can. Could I do anything for my son to, to suggest what he might like to do in his life? Well, I can guide him, but it's his decision. And could I help my daughter financially? Well, yes, I could. So I could put some things in order, and none of those were major issues. Um, but there's cumulative ones. But the biggest one was the relationship with my, my dad and the, him coming towards the end of his life and the family dynamics around that that I couldn't control. So my pain disappeared completely. And then I would visit the house, do what I had to do, maybe not say what I couldn't say, and come back and I'd feel the pain. It was in my foot. It was a, like you call it plantar fasciitis. And I'd get back in the car and I'd feel the pain in my foot. And I thought, wow, wow, it's the emotional charge of that situation is so strong that I can't, I have to suppress how I feel there and I can't resolve that. But the pain is telling me, don't go and use the behavior you've been using to, to run away from the emotion that you, you're suffering. It's telling me not to go back to work till eight o'clock again that night and stay another hour. It's telling me, breathe. Go home to the people you love. And until you get the skills and development to kind of maybe process emotions in a healthy way consistently and be okay with that, then use the people in your life, the places in your life, the people who love you, the spaces that you feel loved in, and use them to help you. And which we should, we are not islands, but if you've never learned that space to be okay with stillness and uh, be authentically you who you are then you only ever know who you are when you've been busy at work and at home with other people that you love and we, we there's got to be some other middle ground where you can be alone and be okay and once you find that space that doesn't mean you don't need people places times and things that you love but you should and it doesn't mean you can't go to work and have a vigorating and chase a life that's so exciting you have to find that stillness that it's okay to be you without all of that. And I think I'm getting closer to finding it. That's awesome. So what was your goal in writing the book? Like what is the overall arching premise? Is it just information? Are there tools in there that people can use to help them um, unpack the deeper meaning of their pain? Yeah, I suppose uh, the premise of the book is to really take someone from a perspective of pain 
and offer them the opportunity to look at it slightly differently. Maybe reflect on their own circumstances as they do it. And there's some simple human kind of pointers, uh, pain that any pain, whether it's acute or chronic, has different, a certain thought process, it has a certain breathing pattern, it has certain movement patterns, and it has an emotion based in fear and lots of variations of that. A child has that with a cut finger or someone stolen a toy, but with five minutes with the parent, they don't have pain. They've given different thoughts, they're given different breathing pattern, they're given physical attention or small movement of the arm or leg that's grazed from falling off the bike, and they're given care, kindness, compassion and love. And that's to show them that when the parent's gone or no longer available, that that child that child can recover from their own physical and emotional distress in life by using those mechanisms alone. And they may get support of other people and care and compassion and thoughts and words and movements and touch of other people that are beneficial, but it's giving them the skills on their own. So it's showing them that the, the book's really meant to say that it is, pain isn't what you've always believed it to be. It isn't what it's always been sold and the solutions aren't always what's currently advertised on the telly or promoted in magazines. The answer is within. And there's lots of resources you can get from supporting organisations and people and practitioners. And they're helpful on the journey just to kind of almost search out the skills within yourself that... Um, or you'll be able to apply for the rest of your life. It'll help you raise the possibility that you can recover from persistent pain. And, and on that process, you, you can almost demonstrate it to other people that it's possible in them. And that ability to be almost share it and pass it on one at a time is um, it's a legacy that I'd like to kind of leave. I love it. That's awesome. Where can people find your book? It's on Amazon, uh, UK and America and Canada and Australia. So uh, I think I've sold a few in India and Spain. I'm getting a Spanish translation soon. Uh, there's an audio book, there's an e-book, and there's a paperback. I have a website to find a little bit of information about me and some concepts in the book. But um, yeah, it's kind of out there. It points to lots of other resources that aren't mine, that people can get information from if people do the similar thing. I'm absolutely not the only person in this field. There's loads of others. It's simply my perspective on it after 25 years in the game. And you are on Instagram as the pain habit, right? I'm on Instagram, yeah. And it- we have a Facebook group, have a little private Facebook group for people who maybe want to share things that they wouldn't like to share publicly that's free to join. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, and I have a little YouTube channel that I've put videos on and kind of case studies and share people's success stories. And there's lots of power in actually seeing other people who have improved from similar situations. So uh, um, it's kind of... I have my standard day-to-day clinical practice, but it's almost like a bit of a passion alongside that to kind of grow that body of information that's really evidence that someone can explore and accept or reject. That's absolutely fine. And I also work online with people that um, are happy to do that. Okay. And what's the Facebook group called? It's called the Pain Habit Recovery Group. And you can click that link on the Facebook, Facebook page on on Facebook, there'll be a little link for the group somewhere. Okay. And YouTube is the pain habit also? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's it. All right. Do you have – um? oh, I almost was going to let you get away without asking you the most important question, <laughs> uh, which I ask everybody, which is just if you had one message that you could share or that you were going to share with the world for the rest of your life, what would that one message be? I'll share the fact that you do have the power within to overcome pain. And if you're able to see that source of gold within you, it applies to so much more than pain. 
and you can apply the same mechanism for recovering from pain as you can in kind of achieving all the boundaries that you currently see as existing in your life. Mm. That's awesome. Thank you. And are there any final thoughts or messages or just anything else you wanted to share today that I didn't ask you about? Well, um, I'd just like to uh, give thanks to you because it's people like you, Chasmith, who really, uh, you've had your own journey that you've, you've kind of shared through these podcasts and had people on. And uh, it's really just a great appreciation of what people like you do that um, offer a forum for people like me to share my story that might help get these kind of messages out to a broader um, population, wider population. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here today. And thank you for just continuing to spread the message of possibility. Little by little, baby steps. Eh? I'm sure I'm not the first person to say that, but baby steps. Yeah, I'm learning that every day. Little by little, little by little goes a long way. <laughs> That's a wrap. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode and my chat with Drew. Um, please don't forget to click subscribe, share this episode if you found it helpful for you maybe it will be helpful for somebody else as well. Um, if you are interested in sharing your story or you have a message that you want to share, please consider reaching out to me and let's have a chat to see if it is a good fit. And savor the good, savor the moments, exaggerate it all this week and just bask in it. And until next time, make the week great.